Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I will be reading Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 6, in which Fix, the detective, betrays a very natural impatience. 
The circumstances under which this telegraphic dispatch about Phileas Fogg was sent were as follows. The steamer Mongolia, belonging to the Peninsular and Oriental Company, built of iron, of 2,800 tons burden and 500 horsepower, was due at 11 o'clock a.m. on Wednesday, the 9th of October, at Suez. The Mongolia plied regularly between Brindisi and Bombay via the Suez Canal and was one of the fastest steamers belonging to the company, always making more than 10 knots an hour between Brindisi and Suez and nine and a half between Suez and Bombay. Two men were promenading up and down the wharves among the crowd of natives and strangers who were sojourning at this once straggling village. Now, thanks to the enterprise of Monsieur Lesseps, a fast-growing town. One was the British consul at Suez, who, despite the prophecies of the English government and the unfavourable predictions of Stevenson, was in the habit of seeing, from his office window, English ships passing daily to and fro on the Great Canal, by which the old roundabout route from England to India by the Cape of Good Hope was abridged by at least a half. The other was a small, slight-built personage with a nervous, intelligent face and bright eyes peering out from under eyebrows which he was incessantly twitching. He was just now manifesting unmistakable signs of impatience, nervously pacing up and down, and unable to stand still for a moment. This was Fix, one of the detectives who had been dispatched from England in search of the bank robber. It was his task to narrowly watch every passenger who arrived at Suez and to follow up all who seemed to be suspicious characters or bore a resemblance to the description of the criminal, which he had received two days before from the police headquarters at London. The detective was evidently inspired by the hope of obtaining the splendid reward, which would be the prize of success, and awaited with a feverish impatience, easy to understand, the arrival of the steamer Mongolia. So you say, Consul, asked he for the twentieth time, that this steamer is never behind time? No, Mr. Fix, replied the Consul. She was bespoken yesterday at Port Said, and the rest of the way is of no account to such a craft. I repeat that the Mongolia has been advance of the time required by the company's regulations and gained the prize awarded for excess of speed. Does she come directly from Brindisi? Directly from Brindisi. She takes on the Indian mails there, and she left there Saturday at 5 p.m. Have patience, Mr. Fix. She will not be late. But really, I don't see how, from the description you have, you will be able to recognize your man, even if he is on board of Mongolia. A man rather feels the presence of these fellows, Consul, than recognizes them. You must have a scent for them. And a scent is like a sixth sense, which combines hearing, seeing, and smelling. I've arrested more than one of these gentlemen in my time, and if my thief is on board, I'll answer for it. He'll not slip through my fingers. I hope so, Mr. Fix, for it was a heavy robbery. A magnificent robbery, Consul. Fifty-five thousand pounds. We don't often have such windfalls. Burglars are getting to be so contemptible nowadays. 
a fellow gets hung for a handful of shillings. Mr. Fix, said the consul, I like your way of talking, and I hope you'll succeed. But I fear you'll find it far from easy. Don't you see, the description which you have there has a singular resemblance to an honest man. Consul, remarked the detective dogmatically, great robbers always resemble honest folks. Fellows who have rascally faces have only one course to take, and that is to remain honest. Otherwise, they would be arrested offhand. The artistic thing is to unmask honest countenances. It's no light task, I admit, but a real art. Mr. Fix evidently was not wanting in a tinge of self-conceit. Little by little, the scene on the quay became more animated. Sailors of various nations, merchants, shipbrokers, porters, fellas, bustled to and fro as if the steamer were immediately expected. The weather was clear and slightly chilly. The minarets of the town loomed above the houses in the pale rays of the sun. A jetty pier, some two thousand yards long, extended into the roadstead. A number of fishing smacks and coasting boats, some retaining the fantastic fashion of ancient galleys, were discernible on the Red Sea. As he passed among the busy crowd, Fix, according to habit, scrutinized the passers-by with a keen, rapid glance. It was now half-past ten. The steamer doesn't come, he exclaimed, as the port clock struck. She can't be far off now returned his companion. How long will she stop at Suez? Four hours. Long enough to get in her coal. It is thirteen hundred and ten miles from Suez to Aden, at the other end of the Red Sea, and she has to take in a fresh coal supply. And does she go from Suez directly to Bombay? Without putting in anywhere. Good, said Fix. If the robber is on board, he will no doubt get off at Suez so as to reach the Dutch or French colonies in Asia by some other route. He ought to know that he would not be safe an hour in India, which is English soil. Unless, objected the consul, he's exceptionally shrewd. An English criminal, you know, is always better concealed in London than anywhere else. This observation furnished the detective food for thought, and meanwhile the consul went away to his office. Fix, left alone, was more impatient than ever, having a presentiment that the robber was on board the Mongolia. If he had indeed left London, intending to reach the New World, he would naturally take the route via India, which was less watched and more difficult to watch than that of the Atlantic. But Fix's reflections were soon interrupted by a succession of sharp whistles, which announced the arrival of the Mongolia. The porters of fellas rushed down the quay, and a dozen boats pushed off from the shore to go meet the steamer. Soon, her gigantic hull appeared passing along between the banks, and eleven o'clock struck as she anchored in the road. She brought an unusual number of passengers, some of whom remained on deck to scan the picturesque panorama of the town, while the greater part disembarked in the boats and landed on the quay. Fix took up a position and carefully examined each face and figure which made its appearance. Presently, one of the passengers, after vigorously pushing his way through the importunate crowd of porters, came up to him and politely asked if 
he could point out to the English consulate. At the same time, showing a passport which he wished to have visaed. Fix instinctively took the passport and with a rapid glance read the description of its bearer. An involuntary motion of surprise nearly escaped him, for the description of the passport was identical with that of the bank robber which he had received from Scotland Yard. Is this your passport? No, it's my master's. And your master is? He stayed on board. But he must go to the consuls in person so as to establish his identity. Oh, is that necessary? Quite indispensable. And where is the consulate? There, on the corner of the square, said Fix, pointing to a house two hundred steps off. I'll go and fetch my master, who won't be much pleased, however, to be disturbed. The passenger bowed to Fix and returned to the steamer. Chapter 7 Which once more demonstrates the uselessness of passports as aids to detectives. The detective passed down the quay and rapidly made his way to the consul's office, where he was at once admitted to the presence of that official. Consul, said he, without preamble, I have strong reasons for believing that my man is a passenger on the Mongolia, and he narrated what had just passed concerning the passport. Well, Mr. Fix, replied the consul, I shall not be sorry to see the rascal's face, but perhaps he won't come here, that is, if he is the person you suppose him to be. A robber doesn't quite like to leave traces of his flight behind him. And besides, he is not obliged to have his passport countersigned. If he is as shrewd as I think he is, Consul, he will come. To have his passport visit? Yes. Passports are only good for annoying honest folks and aiding in the flight of rogues. I assure you it would be quite the thing for him to do, but I hope you will not visa the passport. Why not? If the passport is genuine, I have no right to refuse. Still, I must keep this man here until I can get a warrant to arrest him from London. Ah, that's your lookout. But I cannot. The consul did not finish his sentence, for as he spoke a knock was heard at the door, and two strangers entered, one of whom was the servant whom Fix had met on the quay. The other, who was his master, held out his passport with the request that the consul would do him the favour to visa it. The consul took the document and carefully read it, whilst Fix observed, or rather devoured, the stranger with his eyes from a corner of the room. You are Phileas Fogg, said the consul, after reading the passport. I am. And this man is your servant? He is. A Frenchman named Passepartout. You're from London? Yes. And you're going to Bombay? Very good, sir. You know that a visa is useless and that no passport is required. I know it, sir, replied Phileas Fogg. But I wish to prove, by your visa, that I came by Suez. Very well, sir. The council proceeded to sign and date the passport, after which he added his official seal. Mr. Fogg paid the customary fee coldly bowed and went out, followed by a servant. Well, queried the detective. Well, he looks and acts like a perfectly honest man, replied the consul. Possibly, but that is not the question. Do you think, consul, that this phlegmatic gentleman resembles 
feature by feature, the robber whose description I've received. I can see that, but then, you know, all descriptions. I'll make certain of it, interrupted Fix. The servant seems to me less mysterious than the master. Besides, he's a Frenchman and can't help talking. Excuse me for a little while, Consul. Fix started off in search of Passepartout. Meanwhile, Mr. Fogg, after leaving the consulate, repaired to the quay, gave some orders to Passepartout, went off to the Mongolia in a boat, and descended to his cabin. He took up his notebook, which contained the following memoranda. Left London, Wednesday, October 2nd, at 8.45pm. Reached Paris, Thursday, October 3rd, at 7.20am. Left Paris, Thursday, at 8.40am. Reached Turin by Montsenis. Friday, October 4th, at 6.35am. Left Turin, Friday, at 7.20am. Arrived at Brindisi, Saturday, October 5th, at 4pm. Sailed on the Mongolia, Saturday, at 5pm. Reached Suez, Wednesday, October 9th, at 11am. Total of hours spent, 158 plus, or in days, six days and a half. These dates were inscribed in an itinerary, divided into columns, indicating the month, the day of the month, and the day for the stipulated and actual arrivals of each principal point, Paris, Brindisi, Suez, Bombay, Calcutta, Singapore, Hong Kong, Yokohama, San Francisco, New York, and London, from the 2nd of October to the 21st of December, and giving a space for setting down the gain made or the loss suffered on arrival at each locality. This methodical record thus contained an account of everything needed, and Mr. Fogg always knew whether he was behindhand or in advance of his time. On this Friday, October 9th, he noted his arrival at Suez and observed that he had as yet neither gained nor lost. He sat down quietly to breakfast in his cabin, never once thinking of inspecting the town, being one of those Englishmen who were wont to see foreign countries through the eyes of their domestics. Chapter 8 In which Passepartout talks rather more, perhaps, than is prudent. Fix soon rejoined Passepartout, who was lounging and looking about on the quay, as if he did not feel that he, at least, was obliged not to see anything. Well, my friend, said the detective, coming up to him, is your passport visaed? Ah, it's you, is it, monsieur? responded Passepartout. Thanks, yes, the passport is all right. And you're looking about you? Yes. But we travel so fast that I seem to be journeying in a dream. So this is Suez? Yes. In Egypt? Certainly in Egypt. And in Africa? In Africa. In Africa, repeated Passepartout. Just think, monsieur. I had no idea that we should go further than Paris, and all that I saw of Paris was between twenty minutes past seven and twenty minutes before nine in the morning, between the Northern and the Lyon stations, through the windows of a car, and in a driving rain. You were in a great hurry then. I am not, but my master is. By the way, I must buy some shoes and shirts. 
We came away without trunks, only with a carpet bag. I will show you an excellent shop for getting what you want. Really, monsieur, you're very kind. And they walked off together, past for two, chatting volubly as they went along. Above all, said he, don't let me lose the steamer. You have plenty of time, it's only twelve o'clock. Passepartout pulled out his big watch. Twelve, he exclaimed. Why, it's only eight minutes before ten. Your watch is slow. My watch? A family watch, monsieur, which has come down from my great-grandfather. It doesn't vary five minutes in the year. It's a perfect chronometer. Look you. I see how it is, said Fix. You've kept London time, which is two hours behind that of Suez. You ought to regulate your watch at noon in every country. I regulate my watch? Never. Well then, it will not agree with the sun. So much the worse for the sun, monsieur. The sun will be wrong then. And the worthy fellow returned the watch to its fob with a defiant gesture. After a few minutes' silence, Fix resumed. You left London hastily then? I rather think so. Last Friday at eight o'clock in the evening, Monsieur Fogg came home from his club, and three quarters of an hour afterwards we were off. And where's your master going? Always straight ahead. He's going around the world. Around the world? cried Fix. Yes, and in eighty days. He says it is on a wager, but between us, I don't believe a word of it. That wouldn't be common sense. There's something else in the wind. Ah, Mr. Fogg is a character, is he? I should say he is. Is he rich? No doubt, for he's carrying an enormous sum in brand new banknotes with him. And he doesn't spare the money on the way either. He has offered a large reward to the engineer of the Mongolia if he gets us to Bombay well in advance of time. And you have known your master a long time? Why no? I entered his service the very day we left London. The effect of these replies upon the already suspicious and excited detective may be imagined. The hasty departure from London soon after the robbery, the large sum carried by Mr. Fogg, his eagerness to reach distant countries, the pretext of an eccentric and foolhardy bet, all confirmed Fix in his theory. He continued to pump poor Passepartout and learned that he really knew little or nothing of his master, who lived a solitary existence in London, was said to be rich, though no one knew whence came his riches, and was mysterious and impenetrable in his affairs and habits. Fix felt sure that Phileas Fogg would not land at Suez, but was really going on to Bombay. Is Bombay far from here? asked Passepartout. Pretty far. It is a ten days' voyage by sea. And what country is Bombay? India. In Asia? Certainly. The deuce. I was going to tell you there's one thing that worries me. My burner. What burner? My gas burner, which I forgot to turn off, and which is at this moment burning at my expense. I've calculated, monsieur, that I lose two shillings every four and twenty hours, exactly sixpence more than I earn. And you will understand that the longer our journey... Did Fix pay any attention to Passepartout's trouble about the gas? It is not probable. He was not listening, but was cogitating a project. Passepartout and he had now reached the shop, where Fix left his companion to make his purchases, after recommending him not to miss the steamer, and hurried back to the consulate.
Now that he was fully convinced, Fixed had quite recovered his equanimity. Consul, said he, I have no longer any doubt. I have spotted my man. He passes himself off as an odd stick who is going round the world in eighty days. Then he's a sharp fellow, returned the consul, and counts on returning to London after putting the police of the two countries off his track. We'll see about that, replied Fix. But are you not mistaken? I am not mistaken. Why was this robber so anxious to prove, by the visa, that he had passed through Suez? Why? I have no idea. But listen to me. He reported in a few words the most important parts of his conversation with Passepartout. In short, said the consul, appearances are wholly against this man. And what are you going to do? Send a dispatch to London for a warrant of arrest to be dispatched instantly to Bombay. Take passage on board the Mongolia, follow my rogue to India, and there, on English ground, arrest him politely with my warrant in my hand and my hand on his shoulder. Having uttered these words with a cool, careless air, the detective took leave of the consul and repaired to the telegraph office, whence he sent the dispatch which we have seen to the London police office. A quarter of an hour later found Fix, with a small bag in his hand, proceeding on board the Mongolia, and ere many moments longer, the noble steamer rode out at full steam upon the waters of the Red Sea. Chapter 9 In which the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean prove propitious to the designs of Phileas Fogg. The distance between Suez and Aden is precisely 1310 miles, and the regulations of the company allow the steamers 138 hours in which to traverse it. The Mongolia, thanks to the vigorous exertions of the engineer, seemed likely, so rapid was her speed, to reach her destination considerably within that time. The greater part of the passengers from Brindisi were bound for India, some for Bombay, others for Calcutta by way of Bombay. The nearest route thither, now that a railway crosses the Indian Peninsula. Among the passengers was a number of officials and military officers of various grades, the latter being either attached to the regular British forces or commanding the sepoy troops and receiving high salaries ever since the central government has assumed the powers of the East India Company. For the sub-lieutenants get £280, brigadiers £2,400, and generals of divisions, £4,000. What with the military men, a number of rich young Englishmen on their travels, and the hospitable efforts of the purser, the time passed quickly on the Mongolia. The best of fare was spread upon the cabin tables at breakfast, lunch, dinner, and the eight o'clock supper, and the ladies scrupulously changed their toilets twice a day. And the hours were whirled away, and the sea was tranquil, with music, dancing, and games. But the Red Sea is full of caprice, and often boisterous, like most long and narrow gulfs. When the wind came from the African or Asian coast, the Mongolia, with her long hull, rolled fearfully. Then the ladies speedily disappeared below. The pianos were silent. Singing and dancing suddenly ceased. Yet the good ship ploughed straight forward, unretarded by wind or wave, towards the straits of Babel Mandeb. 
What was Phileas Fogg doing all this time? It might be thought that, in his anxiety, he would be constantly watching the changes of the wind, the disorderly raging of the billows. Every chance, in short, which might force the Mongolia to slacken her speed and thus interrupt his journey. But if he thought of these possibilities, he did not betray the fact by any outward sign. Always the same impassable member of the Reform Club, whom no incident could surprise, as unvarying as the ship's chronometers, and seldom having the curiosity even to go upon the deck, he passed through the memorable scenes of the Red Sea with cold indifference, did not care to recognize the historic towns and villages which, along its borders, raised their picturesque outlines against the sky, and betrayed no fear of the dangers of the Arabic Gulf, which the old historians always spoke of with horror, and upon which the ancient navigators never ventured without propitiating the gods by ample sacrifices. How did this eccentric personage pass his time on the Mongolia? He made his four hearty meals every day, regardless of the most persistent rolling and pitching on the part of the steamer. And he played whist indefatigably, for he had found partners as enthusiastic in the game as himself. A task collector, on his way to his post at Goa, the Reverend Declan Smith, returning to his parish at Bombay, and a brigadier general of the English army, who was about to rejoin his brigade at Benares, made up the party, and with Mr. Fogg, played whist by the hour together in absorbing silence. As for Passepartout, he too had escaped seasickness and took his meals conscientiously in the forward cabin. He rather enjoyed the voyage, for he was well-fed and well-lodged, took a great interest in the scenes through which they were passing, and consoled himself with the delusion that his master's whim would end at Bombay. He was pleased on the day after leaving Suez, to find on deck the obliging person with whom he had walked and chatted on the quays. If I am not mistaken, said he, approaching this person with his most amiable smile, you are the gentleman who so kindly volunteered to guide me at Suez. Ah, I quite recognize you. You are the servant of the strange Englishman. Just so, monsieur. Fix. Monsieur Fix resumed Passepartout. I'm charmed to find you on board. Where are you bound? Like you, to Bombay. That's capital. Have you made this trip before? Several times. I'm one of the agents of the Peninsular Company. Then you know India? Why, yes, replied Fix, who spoke cautiously. A curious place, this India? Oh, very curious. Mosques, minarets, temples, Fakirs, tigers, snakes, elephants. I hope you'll have ample time to see the sights. I hope so, Monsieur Fix. You see, a man of sound sense ought not to spend his life jumping from a steamer upon a railway train, and from a railway train upon a steamer again, pretending to tour the world in eighty days. No, all these gymnastics, you may be sure, will cease at Bombay. And Mr. Fogg is getting on well? asked Fix in the most natural tone in the world. Quite well, and I too. I eat like a famished ogre. It's the sea air. But I never see your master on deck. Never. He hasn't the least curiosity. 
Do you know, Mr. Passepartout, that this pretended tour in 80 days may conceal some secret errand, perhaps a diplomatic mission? Faith, Monsieur Fix, I assure you I know nothing about it, nor would I give half a crown to find out. After this meeting, Passepartout and Fix got into the habit of chatting together, the latter making it a point to gain the worthy man's confidence. He frequently offered him a glass of whiskey or pale ale in the steamer barroom, which Passepartout never failed to accept with graceful alacrity, mentally pronouncing Fix the best of good fellows. Meanwhile, the Mongolia was pushing forward rapidly. On the 13th, Mocha, surrounded by its ruined walls whereon date trees were growing, was sighted, and on the mountains beyond were espied vast coffee fields. Passepartout was ravished to behold this celebrated place, and thought that, with its circular walls and dismantled fort, it looked like an immense coffee cup and saucer. The following night, they passed through the street of Bab el-Mandeb, which means in Arabic, the Bridge of Tears, and the next day they put in at Steamer Point, northwest of Aden Harbour, to take in coal. This matter of fueling steamers is a serious one at such distances from the coal mines. It costs the Peninsular Company some £800,000 a year. and these distant seas, coal is worth three or four pounds sterling a tonne. The Mongolia had still 1,650 miles to traverse before reaching Bombay and was obliged to remain four hours at Steamer Point to coal up. But this delay, as it was foreseen, did not affect Phileas Fogg's programme. Besides, the Mongolia, instead of reaching Aden on the morning of the 15th when she was due, arrived there on the evening of the 14th, a gain of 15 hours. Mr. Fogg and his servant went ashore at Aden to have the passport again visaed. Fix, unobserved, followed them. The visa procured, Mr. Fogg returned on board to resume his former habits, while Passepartout, according to custom, sauntered about among the mixed population who comprised the 25,000 inhabitants of Aden. He gazed with wonder upon the fortifications which make this place the Gibraltar of the Indian Ocean, and the vast cisterns where the English engineers were still at work, 2,000 years after the engineers of Solomon. Very curious, very curious, said Prospetu to himself on returning to the steamer. I see that it is by no means useless to travel if a man wants to see something new. At 6 p.m. the Mongolia slowly moved out of the roadstead and was soon once more on the Indian Ocean. She had a 168 hours in which to reach Bombay and the sea was favourable, the wind being in the northwest and all sails aiding the engine. The steamer rolled but little, the ladies in fresh toilets reappeared on deck and the singing and dancing were resumed. The trip was being accomplished most successfully and Passepartout was enchanted with the congenial companion which chance had secured him in the person of the delightful fix. On Sunday, October 20th, towards noon, they came in sight of the Indian coast. Two hours later, the pilot came on board. A range of hills lay against the sky and the horizon, and soon the rows of palms which adorned Bombay came distinctly into view. The steamer entered the road formed by the islands in the bay, and at half-past four, 
she hauled up the keys of Bombay. Phileas Fogg was in the act of finishing the 33rd rubber of the voyage, and his partner and himself, having, by a bold stroke, captured all 13 of the tricks, concluded this fine campaign with a brilliant victory. The Mongolia was due at Bombay on the 22nd. She arrived on the 20th. This was a gain to Phileas Fogg of two days since his departure from London, and he calmly entered the fact in the itinerary in the column of gains. Chapter 10 In which Passepartout is only too glad to get off with the loss of his shoes. Everybody knows that the great reversed triangle of land, with its base in the north and its apex in the south, which is called India, embraces 1,400,000 square miles, upon which is spread unequally a population of 180 millions of souls. The British crown exercises a real and despotic dominion over the larger portion of this vast country, and has a governor-general stationed at Calcutta, governors at Madras, Bombay, and in Bengal, and a lieutenant governor at Agra. But British India, properly so-called, only embraces 700,000 square miles and a population of 100 to 110 millions of inhabitants. A considerable portion of India is still free from British authority, and there are certain ferocious Rajas in the interior who are absolutely independent. The celebrated East India Company was all-powerful from 1756, when the English first gained a foothold on the spot where now stands the city of Madras, down to the time of the great Sepoy insurrection. It gradually annexed province after province, purchasing them from the native chiefs, whom it seldom paid, and appointed the governor-general and his subordinates civil and military. But the East India Company has now passed away, leaving the British possessions in India directly under the control of the crown. The aspect of the country, as well as the manners and distinctions of race, is daily changing. Formerly one was obliged to travel in India by the old cumbrous methods of going on foot or on horseback in palanquins or unwieldy coaches. Now fast steamboats ply on the Indus and the Ganges and a great railway with branch lines joining the main line at many points on its route traverses the peninsula from Bombay to Calcutta in three days. This railway does not run in a direct line across India. The distance between Bombay and Calcutta as the bird flies, is only from 1,000 to 1,100 miles, but the deflections of the road increase this distance by more than a third. The general route of the Great Indian Peninsula Railway is as follows. Leaving Bombay, it passes through Salset, crossing to the continent opposite Tana, goes over the chain of the Western Ghauts, runs thence northeast as far as Barhampur, skirts the narrowly independent territory of Bendalkund, ascends to Allahabad, turns thence eastwardly, meeting the Ganges at Benares, then departs from the river a little, and descending southeastward by Burdavan and the French town of Chandernagore, has its terminus at Calcutta. The passengers of the Mongolia went ashore at half past four p.m. At exactly eight, the train would start for Calcutta. Mr. Fogg, after bidding goodbye to his whist partners, left the steamer, 
gave his servant several errands to do, urged it upon him to be at the station promptly at eight, and with his regular step, which beat to the second, like an astronomical clock, directed his steps to the passport office. As for the wonders of Bombay, its famous city hall, its splendid library, its forts and docks, its bazaars, mosques, synagogues, its Armenian churches, and the noble Goda on Malabar Hill, with its two towers, he cared not a straw to see them. He would not deign to examine even the masterpieces of Elephanta, or the mysterious Hypergea, concealed southeast from the docks, or those fine remains of Buddhist architecture, the Canarian grottos of the Island of Salsette. Having transacted his business at the passport office, Phileas Fogg repaired quietly to the railway station, where he ordered his dinner. Fix had gone on shore shortly after Mr. Fogg, and his first destination was the headquarters of the Bombay police. He made himself known as a London detective, told his business at Bombay, and the position of affairs relative to the supposed robber, and nervously asked if a warrant had served from London. It had not reached the office indeed. There had not been yet time for it to arrive. Fix was sorely disappointed and tried to obtain an order of arrest from the director of the Bombay police. This the director refused, as the matter concerned the London office, which alone could legally deliver the warrant. Fix did not insist, and was fain to resign himself to await the arrival of the important document. But he was determined not to lose sight of the mysterious rogue as long as he stayed in Bombay. He did not doubt for a moment, any more than Passepartout, that Phileas Fogg would remain there, at least until it was time for the warrant to arrive. Passepartout, however, had no sooner heard his master's orders on leaving the Mongolia than he saw at once that they were to leave Bombay as they had done Suez and Paris, and that the journey would be extended at least as far as Calcutta and perhaps beyond that place. He began to ask himself if this bet that Mr. Fogg talked about was not really in good earnest, and whether his fate was not in truth forcing him, despite his love of repose, around the world in eighty days. Having purchased the usual quota of shoes and shirts, he took a leisurely promenade about the streets where crowds of people of many nationalities, Europeans, Persians, Banyas, Sins, Parsis, and long-robed Armenians were collected. It happened to be the day of a Parsi festival. These descendants of the sect of Zoroaster were celebrating a sort of religious carnival with processions and shows, in the midst of which Indian dancing girls, clothed in rose-coloured gauze, looped up with gold and silver, danced airily, but with perfect modesty, to the sound of viols and the clanging of tambourines. It is needless to say that Passepartout watched these curious ceremonies with staring eyes and gaping mouth, and that his countenance was that of the greenest booby imaginable. Unhappily for his master, as well as himself, his curiosity drew him unconsciously further off than he intended to go. At last, having seen the Parsi carnival wind away in the distance, he was turning his steps towards the station when he happened to espy this splendid pagoda on Malabar Hill and was seized with an irresistible desire to see its interior. He was quite ignorant that it is forbidden to Christians to enter certain Indian temples, and that even the faithful must not go in 
without first leaving their shoes outside the door. It may be said here that the wise policy of the British government severely punishes a disregard of the practices of the native religions. Passepartout, however, thinking no harm, went in like a simple tourist and was soon lost in admiration of the splendid Brahmin ornamentation which everywhere met his eyes. When, of a sudden, he found himself sprawling on the sacred flagon, he looked up to behold three enraged priests who forthwith fell upon him, tore off his shoes, and began to beat him with loud exclamations. The agile Frenchman was soon upon his feet again and lost no time in knocking down two of his long-gowned adversaries with his fists and a vigorous application of his toes. Then, rushing out of the pagoda, as fast as his legs could carry him, he soon escaped the third priest by mingling with the crowd in the streets. At five minutes before eight, Passepartout, hatless, shoeless, and having in the squabble lost his package of shirts and shoes, rushed breathlessly into the station. Fix, who had followed Mr. Fogg to the station, and saw that he was really going to leave Bombay, was there upon the platform. He had resolved to follow the supposed robber to Calcutta, and further if necessary. Passepartout did not observe the detective, who stood in an obscure corner, but Fix heard him relate his adventures in a few words to Mr. Fogg. I hope that this will not happen again, said Phileas Fogg coldly as he got into the train. Poor Passepartout, quite crestfallen, followed his master without a word. Fix was on the point of entering another carriage when an idea struck him which induced him to alter his plan. No, I'll stay, muttered he. An offence has been committed on Indian soil. I've got my man. Just then the locomotive gave a sharp screech and the train passed out into the darkness of the night. Good night.